This is The Candidates, a limited podcast series by Only Sky Media, highlighting non-religious candidates in the 2022 midterm elections. I'm your host, Sarah Levin. You're about to hear my conversation with Eleanor A. Levin, who's running for the Iowa State House, District 89. She's culturally Jewish in a state that hasn't had a Jewish legislator in almost 30 years. In this episode, we talk about including essential workers in policy decisions, getting beyond binaries and into the nuance of issues, brain drain, a topic we've covered in previous episodes, and a great story about how she found common ground with a conservative voter while knocking on doors. Take a listen. We are here with Eleanor A. Levin, who is running for Iowa House District 89. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. So I wanted to start by asking you, you know, we're interviewing uh, folks who are running as openly secular. So I want to start by asking, how how do you identify what's your non-religious identity and how does it impact your values as a candidate and also just in your personal life? So I was raised non-religious. My um, family on one side is Jewish, on the other side is Catholic. Um, I identify as kind of culturally Jewish. Um, we were raised, um, you know, around our Jewish family and um, participating in a lot of Jewish activity. And I like a lot of the culture of Judaism, but I don't believe in God. So <laughs> that pretty much determines my religious status for me. I mean, my values come from, I think, the same place that everybody else's do. I was raised to believe that you treat people with kindness and compassion and that you try to work for the betterment of the people who need your help. I was raised to believe that if you are hurting someone else, that's wrong, and that if you can help someone else, you should. I was raised to believe that if someone else's actions aren't impacting me, then it's pretty much none of my business. In the campaign, it's only come up in that um, Iowa actually hasn't had a Jewish legislator in um, almost 30 years. So, um, and we we don't have a lot of non-religious, openly non-religious legislators either. And so the fact that uh, there were three of us running in the primary, in the Democratic primary in Iowa City who are all Jewish, um, and all three of us won our primaries, um, was of note, was something that people noticed and, uh, and asked about. Um, and we have very different ways of being Jewish in the three, the three of us, which I think is it's exciting to have the opportunity to bring the perspective of a group of people who have not been represented at all in the Iowa State House or the Senate. What do you think that you bring to the policy table that's unique, um, given that you're, you're holding that perspective? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to say things, to ask questions like, would you feel the same way about this if someone from a different religion were making this case? Um, we do have a lot of decisions that, well, a, a lot of legislation that gets proposed in Iowa, not always that, not always that gets passed, but that feels deeply religious, that is really based on the idea that we all share the exact same Christian morality and goals and ideals, and um, a lot of conversations around religious freedom that I don't think would be the same if the religion in question was not was not some form of Christianity. I'm eager to be the person to step up and say, what if the person asking this question or wanting to have this uh, accommodation made for them was Muslim? 
Are you seeing Christian nationalism play out in the state or in your district? Um, and if so, in what ways? And um, well, let me start. Yeah, let me start with that. I don't see a lot of overt Christian nationalism in Iowa. I see a lot of language that's kind of coded. You know, the term Iowa values gets thrown a lot around a lot in certain contexts. We all know what it means. It means Christians. It means white. It means opposite gender parents of multiple children. It's all kind of tied together. It's It's got this religious component, but that's not maybe necessarily the entirety of it. Um, but I also just see a lot of quiet work in terms of taking away funding from public schools and giving funding to private religious schools that have the ability to turn down students to not to take pick and choose who they educate um, in terms of supporting and promoting judges, committee members, individuals to positions of non unelected political power um, who then go on to make decisions in line with the Christian right. Yeah, I would say it's not terribly overt here from my perspective. There are certainly individuals who will stand up very proudly and say, well, you know, I'm Christian and this is the decision we should make. But it seems more implied. There's there's a, a strong effort to connect to people without having to say the quiet part out loud. In Iowa. Right, which can almost be even more dangerous sometimes, right, when it's coded. Yeah, it makes it safer for people who are actually moderate to be a part of what ends up being a hurtful policy position. Do you think more moderates, if sort of the quiet part was said out loud, might want to distance themselves more? I like to think so. I mean, when we uh, look at some of the meetings that our governor has taken, for example, a meeting that she took up at a school district north of here with a small group of concerned parents who did not want to see children using the restrooms of their of their own gender that they know themselves to be, um, but rather wanted them to be required to use the restroom of their gender assigned at birth. We talk a lot about protecting children, but not about the fact that the children most at risk in that situation are the ones who are being forced to go into a restroom where they don't feel comfortable and they don't feel themselves to be safe and where evidence shows that they're not safe. Um, and so, again, when we take the quiet part and we say it out loud, people don't want to put those kids in that situation where they are, we know, more likely to be unsafe than if we allow them to use the restroom where they feel they should be. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So let's imagine for a second, because Christian nationalism is has gained, just they've just made a lot of gains as a movement. And so if we imagine 50 years from now that that's been dismantled, um, we like to talk a lot at Only Sky, not just about what we're against, but also what we're for, right? Like how things could be better, which I know is a big part of your campaign. So what does that look like for people? How How... What would an Iowa or a United States look like in that scenario? For me, that looks like a place where people are excited to live here and to be who they are loudly and proudly, where people live alongside and next door to individuals who are very different from them without worrying that if they are them true self, their, their own true selves openly and clearly that 
they might be the recipients of hate from the people next door. And this means in both directions. Um, if someone is conservative and someone is, you know, wanting to promote their own, their own conservative values, they should not be the recipient of hate, just like someone who is progressive should not be the recipient of hate for those values. To me, to be more specific, there would be things like our laws would be entirely separate from religion. They would be based on evidence. They would be based on science. They would be based on bringing all of the stakeholders in to discuss and figuring out what's going to work best for the people who this law is designed to serve. Um, I, I see a lot of opportunities to bring more stakeholders into the room and get their perspective before passing legislation that's going to impact them, right? So at this point, sometimes there are those people who have always come to the table and they know they have a seat at the table and their voices are going to be heard. And then there are groups that are talked about but not talked to or not invited in. And some of those groups, like we have uh, here a really strong excluded workers group that is fighting hard in this uh, county for representation and for their voice to be heard in issues like pandemic funding that did not go to them. Everyone else received these checks, received payments from the federal government. Well, these are folks who were not qualified for those payments. And so they're fighting hard to have a seat at the table to be heard to say there's all this pandemic funding that came from the CARES Act, one of the priorities needs to be funding folks who were missed out by that funding. Mm. And, you know, the amounts we're talking about are not huge. It's, you know, we're not even talking about one or two months rent for most people. But mm -hmm. acknowledging that these people are such a vital part of our community, that honestly, a lot of them are working the jobs that other people don't want to work. They were the ones, a lot of them, who didn't get time off at the beginning of the pandemic when everything shut down, because when we all stayed at home and ordered food from restaurants, they were the ones making and delivering it. When we all stayed home and only went to the hospital if we were really, really sick, they were the ones cleaning the hospital, working in food service at the hospital, making sure the lights stayed on at the hospital. What I really want to see is a political system that makes decisions based on what's going to work best for everyone involved, not only those who have always had their voices heard and who have had the political power going back generations. I'm wondering, because a big theme of your campaign is public good, right? Doing the most for the most people, right? So how how is that in, in such an individualistic culture? Um, uh, how are you finding your message coming across as you're talking about things like, yes, I know you don't, nobody likes taxes, but this is why it's important. How, as you're talking to voters, how is that playing out? That is a great question. Um, I'll, I'll actually, I'll use a specific example to answer that question. Um, I, when, as I've been knocking doors, um, I'm specifically knocking middle voters. So I'm not knocking the hard, the hard Democratic doors. I'm knocking folks who split tickets. I'm knocking votes, folks who don't show up to vote, folks who are unengaged. Um, and I specifically one evening had a door on my list. And as I walked up, I realized, oh, this is my door. And I felt that way because there was loud music, actually, sorry, loud talk radio coming from the porch and a gentleman yelling at the radio on the porch. For just a moment, I wondered whether I should go up or not. But I thought, you know, this is, this is what I've chosen to do. And so I walked up and I sort of knocked on the 
the porch post instead of knocking on the door because, as I said, he was outside. Um, and long story short, we got into a long conversation, and he described himself several times as a conservative. Um, and what I found was that he really had bought into the narrative that progressives and Democrats are trying to take his money and give it to people who don't want to work. And so my whole goal in that conversation was to persuade him that there's at least one person who's a self-labeled progressive who's not trying to take his money and give it to people who don't want to work. That rather what I want to do is see that we all have access to the services that we need, that we all have access to live in a world that where we can enjoy recreation, where we can work a job that takes care of us and allows us to maybe have a little bit of leisure every once in a while, where we can raise our families in safety and in, in enjoyment. And at the end of the conversation, he shook my hand. He said, I don't know if I'm going to vote for you, but I'd like talking to you. And that, to me, really demonstrated how powerful a one-on-one -on -one connection can be and, and how it's the only thing that seems to be pushing back against the prevalent narrative that's been going out online, that's been going out through. I mean, I've ended up on some email lists, I'm sure you have too, that are just vitriol, constant, knowing that folks are getting these messages over and over that it's us versus them, us versus them, us versus them. My mm -hmm. whole goal has been to say, it's me and you, it's us together. Mm -hmm. issue that you think doesn't get enough attention that actually has a huge impact on people's lives? It's hard for me to pick one because I think the thing that doesn't get enough attention is not one issue, but it's a framing. Um, mm. The fact that all issues get boiled down to a yay or nay position rather than looking for nuance looking for um, how people genuinely feel um, has led to this us versus them mentality. So, for example, we talk about immigration, right? And people are either for immigration or anti-immigration. And um, so another door I've knocked at, and the only thing that this gentleman wanted to know was, do I favor open borders? That was all he just wanted a yes or no answer to that question. And I sort of refused to answer yes or no. And instead, what I said was, well, I think we need to reform our immigration system. I think, you know, I my family was lucky enough that both sides of my family came here and immigrated here before there were before there was a quota system. Um, and if mm -hmm. that hadn't been true, then it's fairly likely that neither side of my family would have been welcome here. Um, and I think that you know, we talk an awful lot. We talk a good game about how important immigrants are in this country and how this is a nation of immigrants. But then we also make it incredibly difficult for anyone to legally immigrate here, right? We, we, talk, we look at a system where it can take 6, 10, 20 years for someone to legally immigrate. Um, and so while, no, I'm not in favor of open borders, you know, that was the answer to his question, I do understand the people who are coming here and who are 
fleeing persecution, fearing dates, uh, fleeing danger, um, fleeing economic hardship, fleeing climate crisis, and see an opportunity to come here and have the same chances that my great and great great grandparents did around 1900. And so I think it frustrated him that I wouldn't just give him a yes or no, but to me, that's how we have to talk about these issues because they're bigger than yes or no. They're right. bigger than me versus them. They and, and the reason we can't move on anything it feels like right now is that we get stuck on the, are you on this side or that side, rather than looking at, you know, when I... But when I gave this guy my thoughts, he didn't really want all my thoughts. But in the end, we had, again, a whole conversation. And we didn't agree about everything. I'm not going to pretend we did. But he agreed that we needed immigrants, especially in the state of Iowa. We have a lot of a giant workforce crisis here. And knowing that we are having a pretty low birth rate, we need to be bringing in more people, people who want to work hard, people who are eager to become Iowans. And he agreed with me about that. Um, but he just was, was adamant that they not be coming here illegally. And I said, you know, I also think they should not be coming here illegally. I think we should be allowing them to come here legally. And so we got past the, the yes or no, just for a moment. And to me, that's, it's tough to do because in a 30 second soundbite for an ad or in a, Facebook post or a, heaven forbid, a Twitter uh, post. I'm not a big fan of Twitter. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> it's difficult to get into any nuance, but these are nuanced issues and pretending they're not isn't getting us anywhere. Um, so I would say, and I, I, would, I would say immigrant, it's the importance of immigrants and immigration is an issue that I think we talk about a lot, but not enough. And we don't talk about it in real terms. Um, and we forget the people who are being hurt when we just say yes or no and move on. Um, so shifting from bringing people in, I wanted to ask you about the issue of people leaving Iowa. I, I've, I've heard it referred to as brain drain. I don't know if you would, would call it that, but just having folks stay. Um, what are some innovative solutions that you're proposing that would keep people there? That's a big question. There are a lot of people, you know, who get started around here, but then have an opportunity to do better financially, socially elsewhere. And so they take, like you said, that's the brain drain. They take the education, the training that they receive here and they go away. I will also say I'm deeply embedded in our arts community. And I see a lot of our best artists making the decision to go away to bigger markets, to go away to places where they can have more opportunity to make visual art, to make theater, to do dance, to do music. Um, I see a lot of people leaving because they just want to live somewhere where they don't have a bit of a sword hanging over their head at all times in terms of their rights and their safety. Um, we've had an awful lot of hurtful legislation go through our uh, recent legislatures in, uh, involving 
the trans community, including the queer community, involving um, making life more difficult for folks who are not in the majority, or at least the perceived majority of the state. And um, knowing that, honestly, what we need to be doing is the exact opposite, is making those people feel more welcome, is making people understand that whether Iowa is their birthplace or their chosen home, it is their home and we want them here and we want them engaged and we want them to flourish because that's the only way that the state survives. Um, right now we have a lot of difficulty, it's kind of a quiet challenge, but in nonprofits in the area, ones that have been around for 40, 50, 60 years, it's difficult to replace board members in those nonprofits with young people coming in because there just aren't mm. enough to go around. Every person I know in their 30s and 40s is so overcommitted <laughs> that it's impossible mm -hmm. to sustain. And so I think there are efforts, I mean, there's so much going on from efforts to make this an incredibly bike-friendly state, to make this a great place to visit on a biking trip, um, from efforts to promote more music festivals and more um, events that will draw people in and engage people in their off hours. Um, to creating things like small business incubation projects within cities and counties to allow people to take a dream and run with it. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities out there, but it's there is no one solution. Um, for me, it's primarily about making people know they're a part of the community and that they're valued. And that takes time and it takes investment. It takes people like, we have some individuals in my neighborhood in particular who spend every waking moment focused on making this a better community and making it a more welcoming community. Um, and I think every you know, town or neighborhood has got those people, but allowing them the resources they need to do that, to create programming for the kids so that you know, a couple of years ago, we had a small group of kids going around with a BB gun and they shot out some like an RV window and things like that. And some people got really mad about it. But the folks who I'm talking about went and found those kids and offered them a chance to, you know, go play basketball or learn to knit or do something else with their time. And you know what? The problem went away. And it wasn't because we yelled at the kids and it wasn't because we, you know, called the cops. It was because we gave them something else to do with their time. I think that when people feel like they're a part of a community, they will work to stay in that community. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. Um, so it, it means there's no one-size-fits-all solutions, but it means making sure that jobs are available, making sure that transportation is available so that people can get to those jobs and keep those jobs. It means making sure that healthcare systems are open and functioning. It means making sure that their mental health is taken care of, whether that is through actual mental health care services 
or through recreation activities or through that community building and support system when things go wrong. There's a lot, there's a lot of work to be done in this particular area, but. Right. And of course, there's no silver bullet or anything like that. But, um, you know, like you mentioned nuance, right? It's not yes or no. It's, it's, it's yes to a lot of different. Yes. And absolutely. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about just running for office. We're really hoping to inspire our listeners and our audience, our readers to consider running for office. And um, for those who are like, no way, I'm never going to do that, you know, to just get involved um, in, in elections and politics. So I'm really curious to start just by hearing about your story of how you, why and how you decided to run and what, just what it's like to, to run a campaign. Sure. Uh, well, your last question really ties directly into why I'm running, um, which is I'm concerned about the future of the state. I see so many people between the ages of 25 and 45 who are either leaving or trying to leave. Um, and to me, that's mm -hmm. personally upsetting because I love it here so much and I want them to stay and I want this place to grow and I want this place to be the future forward thinking rural state that it, it can be. Um, I, I love that I'm literally 10 minutes from what feels like the middle of nowhere, even when I'm in a city in Iowa. Um, and I, I think that's a special position to occupy. And seeing that so many people don't feel welcome, don't feel like their future is here is wrong to me. And so that's why I'm running. I'm running because I want to make this the place that we all want to stay and we all want to live. Um, and I got here through, honestly, through community activism. Um, a lot of my work in the past has been through the League of Women Voters in my area, the local League of Women Voters. I would advise everyone to look up their local League of Women Voters. And if there isn't a local, find your state and ask them about it because they may either have a quiet chapter or encourage you to start one. Um, I have been involved with the community theater. I've been involved with my neighborhood association, with my local business district, and just kind of putting all those pieces together. And the more I met people and the more time I, I spent asking questions of my own state legislators, the more I felt like this is the work I want to be doing. I, I don't seem to be able to turn it off. I'm always paying attention. I'd like some other people to be able to take a break once in a while, and I'm willing to put my time and my energy in so that some of the people I know can take a break once in a while and not feel like they have to be so vigilant every moment because they have a legislator they can trust who they know who cares about them. Um, I would say in terms of actually running, it, it was exactly what I expected and nothing like I expected all at the same time. Um, I was not a, a, a deep insider. I, I am not a deep insider with the local Democratic Party. Um, so my campaign was really me and some of my friends who, you know, some of them have a little graphic design experience. Some of them have some uh, energy to spare, honestly, and just trying to get in front of as many people as possible, talk to people, hear what they had to say. Um, I, you know, 
really focused on spending as much time as possible, especially in the primary, because living in a pretty in a, in a pretty blue district, uh, that was my big fight. Um, to spend as much time as possible just talking to voters. Um, so that meant mm-hmm. Sunday afternoons at our local park, talking to whoever whomever would talk to me. It meant uh, knocking doors without a list. At the beginning of this campaign, I was just knocking doors, going down the street and talking to people in my neighborhood um, and around my neighborhood. Um, and honestly, I think that's what paid off so much. I mean, I, I won the primary and honestly, I wasn't ter- totally surprised to win the primary. I thought I had a chance of winning the primary, but I, I won it with almost two thirds of the vote. And wow. that was not what I expected. <laughs> that was a surprise. And I think what I've heard afterwards is that I just, I talked to enough people who wouldn't have voted otherwise or who, you know, they, they decided to care because they met me. For the folks who are like, there's no way in how I'm ever running for office, but I do yes. want to support candidates like Eleanor Levin. What, what should I do in my area? Okay. So I would say there are four things I would say. The first is, as silly as it sounds, it really does make a difference when people like, share, and comment on social media. Um, social media is kind of the great equalizer as far as running for office goes, because if you share my post with your friends on Facebook, that's 80 to 800 people I wouldn't have gotten a chance to talk to otherwise. And even if only three or four of them then reach out and talk to me, that's three or four people I wouldn't have gotten to talk to otherwise. Um, The second is volunteering for campaigns. Campaigns need help with so many different things, whether it is I've had people volunteer to show up at the farmer's market for me while I was working and talk to potential voters and share kind of about my campaign. I've had people uh, help me with graphic design. I've had people, you know, create social media posts for me when I was not available, when I was not able to do so, um, or just because they created better looking social media posts than I did. Um, I've had people help me stuff envelopes and put together mailings and stick on uh, stamps. Um, I've had people just give me advice and honestly, I know some, I'm sure there are some candidates who don't feel this way, but for me, it's all advice is welcome. I might ignore it, but anyone who wants to talk to me and give me advice, I'm, I'm excited to hear it. Um, and then the other one, of course, is donate, right? Campaigns run on money and a lot of the ways there are to get in front of people's eyes involve money. So that includes sending out mailings to, you know, there are dorm, there are apartment buildings that you can't knock doors at. Being able to mm-hmm. send something in the mail to those folks can make a huge difference. Um, donations also pay for, you know, on larger campaigns, they pay for things like radio, TV, newspaper ads. You know, mm-hmm. uh, donations pay for buttons and stickers and T-shirts, and they pay for food for volunteers. Um, so that's a big one, obviously. Um, but then the last one I would say that um, kind of goes unremarked is uh, talking to your social network, talking to your friends, your family, whether that means hosting an actual candidate meet and greet, you know, inviting the host to your home or to your backyard and inviting over 10 to 20 to 30 people. So that there's just an opportunity for the candidate to meet that, you know, all of those people in one place, or whether that means putting up a yard sign and talking to people about it. 
for whether that means, you know, getting to know what's going to be on your ballot and starting conversations about it well in advance. One big one around here is asking people if they have a plan to vote, because some of our voting laws have changed in Iowa, just like they've changed in some other states in the past couple of years. And so for some people, that means making a new plan to vote for 2022. Um, there are so many different ways. I, I mean, people can write letters to the editor. People can um, make connections to organizations or to groups that are great for me to sit down with. There are an infinite number of ways to help out and make sure that your local officials are not only the people who you want them to be, but know about the things you want them to know about. The Candidates is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from a secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. 